Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. We're going to be in John chapter 11 today, and so if you have a Bible, I encourage you to go there. We'll be primarily, we'll look at some other scriptures, but primarily John chapter 11. So if you have a Bible or even a Bible app, I encourage you to go there. We're going to walk through the story of the raising of Lazarus, and today we're going to discover that ultimately our healing is found in Jesus in the end, in the resurrection that comes at the end of the age. But I want us to walk through this narrative, and so we're just going to start John chapter 11 and verse 1. A man named Lazarus was sick. He lived in Bethany with his sisters, Mary and Martha. This is the Mary who later poured the expensive perfume on the Lord's feet and wiped them with her hair. Her brother Lazarus was sick. So the two sisters sent a message to Jesus telling him, Lord, your dear friend is very sick. This healing story, this healing miracle in the life of Jesus is about a man named Lazarus who was sick. A man named Lazarus who was a friend of Jesus. Jesus, as we all know, had disciples. He had his 12 disciples. Jesus had admirers, he had followers, Jesus had plenty of enemies. But a little known fact in the story of Jesus is that he also had friends. Because Jesus was fully human, he was a human being just like us. And none of us were made to do life all by ourselves. We need to have friends. And friends and friendship is a good thing because Well, your friends, those are the people that you can be with and you can be your real self. Friends are those relationships where you don't have to put on a show. There's no pretense. You can kind of be vulnerable and be yourself and, and know that you're going to be accepted. Friendships, I have found, often begin around some type of common interest, a shared interest. So often people find friends among those who are at the same age and stage of life, right? So empty nesters and retirees often find relationships and friendships with those that, you know, their kids are grown and gone. And conversely, those with young kids at home, they usually find friends with uh, other people who have young kids at home. It's these common interests that kind of bring us together. But I have found that what sustains friendships is this bond of love that says you're accepted and you're safe here with me. And so that's a good thing. I mean, come on now. Friends are good because friends on a good day make those good days much more memorable And friends on a bad day make those days much more tolerable. We need friends. It's a good thing. And we see that in the life of Jesus, that not only did he have his followers and his disciples, but Jesus had friends. And Martha and Mary and Lazarus were a part of his circle of friends. Continuing on the story, verse 4. But when Jesus heard about it, when Jesus got the news that his friend Lazarus was sick, He said, Lazarus's sickness will not end in death. 
know it happened for the glory of God so that the Son of God will receive glory from this. So although Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, he stayed where he was for the next two days. So Jesus says here, don't worry about Lazarus. Death is not the end. But what's happening through the sickness of Lazarus is the son of God, the son of man. Jesus speaking of himself is about to receive glory. Just like in the the healing of the boy with epilepsy that we we heard about last week and Jesus receives glory. So that same glory is going to be revealed through Lazarus. So there's going to be some kind of healing at the end of the sickness that will bring glory to Jesus. This is what the healing miracles of Jesus are about, that the glory that Peter, James, and John saw on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus is transfigured, when his clothes become dazzling white and his face begins to shine, that kind of glory is seen when Jesus comes down the mountain and in the valley and is ministering to the sick. And when there are these miracles of healing, it's for people to see the glory of God. And so Jesus says, Don't worry about Lazarus. The sickness will not end in death. But then, well, Lazarus dies. So Jesus and his disciples make plans to go off to Bethany. Continue the story by skipping down to verse 17. When Jesus arrived at Bethany, he was told that Lazarus had already been in his grave for four days. Now, Bethany was only a few miles down the road from Jerusalem, and many of the people had come to console Martha and Mary in their loss. When Martha got word that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him, but Mary stayed in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask. Now you'll remember Mary and Martha of Lazarus when they first encountered Jesus. This is in Luke chapter 10. They invite Jesus into their home. If you remember that story, Jesus is now growing in his popularity and fame as a teacher and a healer and a prophet and a miracle worker. And so Martha and Mary, they invite Jesus in. And if you remember this story, again, it's in Luke 10. Martha is doing all the work uh, to, to prepare some kind of meal for Jesus. Because in Middle Eastern hospitality, this is what you do with guests. If guests come into your house, you, you make food for them. You give them something to drink. You make them feel welcomed. And if you remember that story, Martha's the one doing all the work. And Mary's just sitting back, just sitting at the feet of Jesus, just listening to him talk. And Martha is all like, Jesus, can't you see this sister of mine is just sitting there while I'm doing all the work? Why don't you tell her to get up and help me with some of the serving? So Martha was was that kind of personality, right? So she was quick to say what was in her heart and mind. And so after the death of her brother, when Jesus finally arrives in Bethany, Martha's not in her house waiting on Jesus. She goes out to the road to meet Jesus. And there they have a very impassioned and important conversation. She says to Jesus, well, Jesus, if if you would have been here, then my brother would be here. Those words stung a little bit. They were coming out of Martha's sorrow. She's in the grief process. 
But Jesus was unfazed, and so he responds in verse 23. Jesus told her, your brother will rise again. Yes, Martha said, he will rise when everyone else rises at the last day. Let's pause for a second and and get a, a bit of a historical context on what she's talking about. Not everyone in the first century Jewish world believed in a physical bodily resurrection at the end of the age. Uh, Not everyone believed in the resurrection in the day of Jesus, but many did. Uh, In particular, Jesus and his followers, they believed that at the end of the age, there would be this physical bodily resurrection of the righteous. And so that's what Martha was talking about here. She said, well, I know my brother will rise in the resurrection at the end of the age. And to understand this with a little bit more depth, I think we have to understand how first century Jewish people understood time. Because what I often hear modern people, particularly modern Christians, is they wanna talk about time and then eternity, right? They wanna talk about, well, we're living in time right now, but we're, we're preparing for eternity, which is off in the future. And so space-time has its confines and its limitations here now, but we're preparing for the future, which is, which is eternity. And I, I think it'll become clear as, as I continue on today that I don't think that's helpful language. It's not helpful language in particular because it's not the way first century Jewish people thought about the orientation of time, the present and the future. Uh, what was common for first century Jewish people, this would include Jesus, is that we have this present age and then we have the age to come. So we have this present evil age where things are broken, where there is corruption, where there is idolatry, where there is immorality, things are not going well. But the Jewish expectation of the first century was that Messiah would come. Messiah is the word for the Jewish king. They believed that there would come a king who would be a king like David, a deliverer and a prophet like Moses. And when Messiah or the Christ would come, when the king would come, the king would usher in the age to come. And with the age to come would be all of the good stuff, for example, that we see in Isaiah's prophecy. That when the age to come, is present among us, this future coming age is now here, then all of the the nations will come to God's mountain and learn the ways of the Lord, right? That's when we won't hurt or destroy anymore on God's holy mountain, right? This is, Isaiah talks about it like a time when the wolf and the lamb will lie down together. This is the, the peaceable, good life that all people ultimately really want. And all of this would come in this future coming age, the age to come. But right now, before Messiah, we're living in this present evil age. Now, for followers of Jesus, we believe that he is the Messiah, that he is the Christ. And so we believe that when Jesus came, Jesus brought with him the life of that future age and he's brought it now into the present. In other words, the age to come has broken into this present evil age. And check this, through our baptism, we have now been ushered into that future coming age. 
Now, if I haven't confused you already, I'm about ready to confuse you. Because the complexity here is that in reality, we are living at the overlap of ages. In other words, we have in one sense been delivered from the present evil age, right? Paul writes that in Galatians chapter one. We've been rescued and saved and delivered out of the present evil age, but the present evil age still persists. And so we're living at this overlap where, yes, we're in the age to come and all the goodness and the peaceableness that, that all the, the prophets talked about because the reign of Messiah has come, but we're still in one sense living in the present evil age. We're living currently at the overlap. Okay, so all of this was just background to understand what Martha was saying when she said, yes, I believe that my brother, Lazarus, who has died, he will rise again because in that future coming age, there would be physical bodily resurrection. Now let's go back to the Lazarus story and let's pick it up, verse 25. So when Martha says that she believes in a resurrection, Jesus says to her, John eleven twenty five, 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. And everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never die. Jesus here making a bold proclamation. Then he says to Martha, do you believe this, Martha? Yes, Lord, she told him. I have always believed you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who has come into the world from God. These are important words from Jesus. This is where he makes one of his seven I am declarations. Throughout the gospel, Jesus makes these I am statements. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the way and the truth and the life. Jesus says, I am the true vine. And here on the road in Bethany with his friend Martha, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Death along with sin and evil, these are the great enemies of God, the great enemies of humanity. And Jesus says, I have come to triumph over them for I am the embodiment of the resurrection and the life. Jesus comes to save us, to rescue us from all that destroys and breaks us. The problem for which Jesus is the solution is sin and death. So Jesus makes this announcement for us to hear that he is the resurrection and the life, but he makes it pointed to Martha. Because he makes this bold proclamation, but then he asks Martha in particular a question, do you believe this? So Jesus not only makes these broad kingdom announcements, but, but he, he brings it to people and asks them, what do you think about all this? Do you believe? And so Jesus today is asking you, do you believe this? Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus is the savior, the healer of the world do you believe that life, the good life, abundant life is found in Jesus? 
And that question, do you believe, is not just, have you made up your religious opinion that of all the religions out there, you think Jesus is the best? Because to believe in Jesus is to put your trust in Jesus, to pledge your allegiance into Jesus only. This is what he's asking when he asks Martha, rather, do you believe? And she says, yes. Yes, I believe. And that's a powerful statement. Story continues, verse 32. When Mary arrived and saw Jesus, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. First Martha saying it, now Mary. Jesus, you would have been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him and he was deeply troubled. Where have you put him? He asked. They told him, Lord, come and see. Then Jesus wept. Jesus was fully human. And when we say that, we really mean that Jesus was a human being just like you and me. That Jesus experienced the full range of human emotions just like you and me. That when Jesus saw sorrow and suffering, it made him mad. He felt anger. When he saw his friend Mary and all those who had come to console her, saw them all weeping at the death of her brother, Jesus was moved to tears. It's the shortest verse in all of scripture. Jesus wept. Jesus saw Mary's tears, but Jesus also sees your tears. Jesus has been touched with all human brokenness and it moves him towards tears so that he sees human tears. He sees your tears. When you were there crying all alone, Jesus saw your tears. He sees your pain. He sees your hurt. Before Jesus does anything else, he weeps with you. He weeps with us. Jesus weeps, but he knows that weeping is not the end of the story. Verse 36, the people who were standing nearby said, see how much he loved him. But some said this man healed a blind man. Couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? Jesus was still angry as he arrived at the tomb, a cave with a stone rolled across its entrance. Roll the stone aside, Jesus told them. But Martha, the dead man's sister, protested, Lord, he has been dead for four days. The smell will be terrible. Martha didn't have any kind of imagination to anticipate what was about to happen. They, uh, Martha, just like you and I, we know what happens. Those who come to the end, they die. We put them in the casket and they are buried. This is the end. Martha had no way to anticipate what was just about to happen. But let's check it out. Verse 40, Jesus responded, didn't I tell you that you would see God's glory if you believed? So they rolled the stone aside. Then Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, thank you for hearing me. You always hear me. 
but I said it out loud for the sake of all these people standing here so that they will believe that you sent me. What was about to happen, this miracle that's about to happen was a sign pointing back to Jesus. Then Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet bound in grave clothes, his face wrapped in a headcloth. Jesus told them, unwrap him and let him go. Many of the people who were with Mary believed in Jesus when they saw this happen. Can you imagine being there and, and taking in this, this experience, this healing miracle. In this miracle, Jesus brought the dead back to life. And just like with the other healing miracles of Jesus, this was, was done so that people could see God's glory in the ministry of Jesus, where people could see God's magnificence and God's majesty. It was all on display in that moment. People saw that Jesus had authority even over death itself. That thing that has plagued all of humanity with fear, Jesus has authority over it. So that death is not ultimately the end. And when people saw Jesus' authority over death, they believed in him. Because this healing miracle, like all of the miracles, is indeed a sign. And it's a sign for us today. I think the healing miracle, the raising of Lazarus is a, is a sign for us today. And here's what it is. Here, here's the whole sermon in one sentence. Here it is. The raising of Lazarus is a sign that our ultimate healing will take place in the resurrection at the end of the age. Jesus shows us what God is like. And so we see that God is a healer, that God is for us, that God is with us, that God wants to rescue, save, deliver, and heal us. We see that in the ministry of Jesus. And each of these miracles are pointing to something that would cause hope to rise in us. And for the raising of Lazarus, the hope that we gain in this is the hope of bodily resurrection at the end of the age. Now we live in a culture where the predominant assumption about the afterlife is heaven. This is just, this is just Western culture, Western Europe, Canada, the United States. This is just in the air that we breathe. This is just the default assumption. You die and you go to heaven. And, and this is recently, there's been survey work that, that plays this out. According to a 2021 Pew Forum survey, 73% of those surveyed, these were U.S. adults, said that they believe in heaven. And not surprisingly, 92% of Christians who were surveyed believed in heaven. Kind of wondering about the other 8% though. I don't, I, what do you guys believe in? So not, not surprisingly, 92% of Christians say they believe in heaven. But here's what I found surprising by this Pew Forum survey. 50% of those who claimed no religious affiliation, right? So in the survey, they could mark religious, 
They could have marked atheist. They didn't believe in God. They could have marked agnostic. Well, I'm not sure, but I think there's a higher power out there or no specific preference, right? So that was the box they marked. 50% of those with, with, these are people who are not seeking spiritual things. These are not people who would call themselves religious or irreligious. They're just dudes. <laughs> They're just average Americans of that group. 50% believe in an afterlife heaven. And to me, that's pretty strong evidence that heaven as the afterlife is pretty predominant in our culture. I mean, if I can get a, a group of people who aren't religious or they're irreligious, they have no scripture, they have no teaching, they got no Jesus, they just got their thoughts. If half of that group is gonna say, I believe in an afterlife heaven, well, I think it's, that's, that's pretty clear that culturally, this is just the assumption, right? You die and go to heaven. Now, let me say, before we get to resurrection, let me say that I do indeed believe in heaven. I believe in heaven as God's domain, as God's space. And I think for those of us in Christ, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord in his heaven. So I do believe that there is this experience with God in heaven after death. I just don't think it's the end. So I don't want to be misunderstood. I do believe in heaven because going to heaven when you die beats the alternative, right? So heaven is good, but heaven's just not the end. And see, because this is a cultural assumption that I would say is not necessarily articulated in either Holy Scripture or the history of the church that you die and go to heaven forever, one of the problems is that I often hear Christians say, well, when we die in faith, we go to heaven and that's when we experience ultimate healing. That ultimate healing takes place when we're in heaven. And I understand the sentiment because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord and to be present with the Lord is a good thing. But I don't necessarily call that ultimate healing. Because while your soul might go to heaven and be with God, your body is in the ground. Heaven is a peaceful, restful place, but it's not the place where God is gonna wipe away every tear. Heaven is not the place where death is no more. Rather, that's the, the, the recreation of heaven and earth. So if we fast forward our Christian story to the very end of our scriptures, Revelation 21, this is what we read. Revelation 21, verse one. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, see the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more for the first things have passed away. See, it's in that place that we experience ultimate healing. Not the peaceful rest in heaven, but in the language of John the Revelator, when heaven comes to earth. 
John sees this picture of a new Jerusalem. It's an it's a image of a, of a new city, of a new order of society. And it's coming from heaven, which is a good place, coming down to earth. And when God's new creation project is fulfilled, when Jesus comes back in the end, when there's this new heavens and there's this new earth, then we will experience a bodily resurrection just like Jesus. And that is where we experience ultimate healing. Because the truth is that every person Jesus prayed for and healed ultimately died. Even Lazarus, who was raised from the dead, ultimately died. Death is coming for all of us. But in Jesus, death is not the end of the story. There is waiting for us. A day coming when Jesus returns and, and everything is recreated, that in a moment we will be changed and those who have died in Christ will raise again and will have new bodies just like Jesus. The Apostle Paul talks about it like this in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul writes, listen, I will tell you a mystery. We will not all die, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. We will be healed ultimately at this moment when Jesus comes back and new creation is fulfilled. In the words of the Apostles' Creed, which we're going to confess in just a moment, what we say about this is that we believe in the resurrection of the dead. This is our hope. This is where we believe we'll experience ultimate healing. Paul continues in 1 Corinthians 15, for this perishable body, it's perishing, this, this kind of body is going to pass away, must put on imperishability. And this mortal body must put on immortality. This mortal body, which is subject to death, will at a future coming to us put on immortality. That is a physicality that will not experience death. Then on that day, in that moment, when we're experiencing ultimate healing, then the saying that is written will be fulfilled. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? And we will come together on Easter Sunday morning to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, which is forecasting all that the scripture was pointing to, which includes our physical resurrection. Until that moment, what we do is we pray for the sick. And we pray for them that God would heal them in this moment, that God would heal them today but we know that not everyone we pray for is gonna be healed instantaneously. So if we pray for someone who's battling sickness and disease and they're not healed right now, does that make God unfaithful to the healing promises that God has made in and through Jesus? No, it just means that God will ultimately fulfill all of God's healing promises in the end. It's a part of that complexity living at the overlap of the ages. I wish I could explain why it's that way. I don't know why. But I know in following Jesus, I put my hope 
in the one who will never fail. And though healing may not come today, we can all expect to receive healing in that age to come. In that future coming age, at the resurrection of the body, we believe will be healed then. Amen. So stand up with me if you are in the building. Let's prepare ourselves for communion. If you're worshiping at home, we encourage you to gather communion elements so that you can celebrate with us here in the sanctuary. And church, what communion has been for the church for 2000 years, in part is a proclamation, an announcement that when we participate in Holy Communion, what we're doing is we are announcing the Lord's death until he comes. Because Jesus gave his life and his life, it's like a, like a seed that falls into the ground that must die, but then it flourishes with new life. And again, because we have been connected to Jesus and, and brought into the age to come, we, we experience a lot of the fruit of, of what comes from the death of Jesus. We experience new life, but we know we're not gonna experience all of that new life now because we're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. And so we want to come to the table today confessing both our Christian faith and confessing our sins. And so I will invite everyone to come and participate in Holy Communion today. Everyone is invited because it's here at the table. Not only are we proclaiming the death of Jesus and we will proclaim it, We'll release you in just a moment to come down to the front and there'll be someone holding a basket of bread and they'll say the body of Christ broken for you. Grab a piece of bread. Someone else will be holding a cup and you'll hear them make this proclamation, the blood of Christ shed for you. Be like Martha today. And you can respond to both of those by saying, amen. Or you can just say, yes, I believe. Take that bread, dip it in the cup. And not only is this action a proclamation of the death of Jesus, but eat that bread and know that somehow, and I, I can't explain it. I wish I knew how, I wish I had the language to explain, but I can just bear witness by my experience that the participation in this meal connects you with Jesus. And I believe that you can be able to experience the presence of Jesus and healing and renewal today. But as we prepare ourselves for communion, let's do so first by confessing our Christian faith, which has in it towards the end, this line that I believe in the resurrection of the body. But let's first, before we confess our sins, confess our Christian faith together. Join me. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, he was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And now join me, let's confess our sins together. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you 
in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. And now God is gracious to all who confess their sins and in humility ask for mercy. In the name of Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. And now we come to the table of Jesus by Jesus' own invitation. It's Jesus who says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. And so we say that this is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who want him and for those who want him more. So come you who have much faith and you who have little, you who have been here often and you who have not been here long, you who have tried to follow Jesus and you who have failed, come. It is the Lord's will that those who want him should meet him here. The body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you.